repeatedly we find areas even in our own community that are under construction. We have buildings that are being erected. We have roadways that are being repaired or new roads that are being uh, done. We sit there and think, boy, we got to put up with this maybe for another year and maybe a couple of years until all of these uh, projects are done. But then we know new projects are going to start all over again. Also, in the very same way, what we have is a recognition that man has really um, accomplished some great wonders in the things that he has constructed. There have been studies done on the seven wonders of the ancient world, now seven wonders of the modern world, and we look at what those might be. I think the ones that we're most familiar with, either out of the ancient world or the modern world, would be uh, just the fascination we have with the pyramids, you know, and just how awesome they are, and to think that they accomplished that without all the cranes and other uh, technological equipment that individuals have to build things today. Uh, it has been recognized that the hanging gardens in Babylon, established by Nebuchadnezzar in that arid area of the world, were a phenomenon to behold. Um, we're trying to put fences around our perimeter. It's a big project, hard to do. There's a wall in China that goes 4,000 miles. I mean, it's, you stand there and you look at it and you're just overwhelmed of what man can do. The Colosseum in Rome was supposed to be magnificent, even as we look at the ruins. And it had the capability of seating more spectators than the majority of uh, both professional and college stadiums do today. Over 50,000 individuals plus to be able to sit in that arena. And we all know of the Taj Mahal. And yet as we study these great works of men, there's a recognition that our God has done things that make all of them pale into, insig into insignificance. We look at creation all around us. And it is so majestic and so glorious. Even David said in the Psalms, When I consider the heavens the work of your hands, what is man that you even take thought of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? A recognition of how great is our God and the majestic works that he performs. And what is even more awesome is we consider the fact God didn't even break out in a sweat when he accomplished all these great works. I mean, he just spoke. He expressed his will and his good pleasure, and it was so. And as Christians, we know that there is another great work that God is going to do in his creative activity, and that is that he is going to roll up this present universe it will disintegrate, but God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth that will cause the things that we see in all of their majestic beauty in this world to be far, far greater and more superior. One in which there'll be no sin, no suffering, no crying, no sorrow. One in which God's people will dwell with God forevermore. But while we think of God's creative work in the past and also anticipate his creative work in the future, what we need to recognize is he is involved in a building project today. 
And that building project is his church. And it is even more profound and more glorious than his creation in the past or that which will be his creative work in the future. As we've been looking at the New Testament church, we have been recognizing its purpose and its function. It's called upon to worship, to worship God in spirit and in truth. But the reality is it's a building project in which every one of God's people have a part. And so while we may think, well, we're not really doing anything of great significance in what we're accomplishing in our lives, what we need to recognize, we are involved in a building project of which God has given us the privilege to participate that is far greater than any of the great accomplishments that men have had in their building projects, either in the past, in the present, or will have in the future. And to better understand this great building project, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, and in Matthew chapter 16. And in Matthew chapter 16, just a simple statement made by the Lord in verse 18 where Jesus said, I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades, the gates of hell, the gates of death and darkness will not prevail or overpower it. Now, very briefly, as we look at this passage, we recognize it is a declaration or a proclamation of good news that was written by one of the apostles, Matthew. Very likely, it was the oldest of all of the gospel records written, and it was primarily written for the benefit of the Jews that they would understand that This Jesus that they had crucified was indeed the promised Messiah. And so instead of as the other gospels start, this one starts with the covenant promises that God made to the nation of Israel. Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and the lineage that is true of him because Matthew wanted them to understand that this Jesus of Nazareth was none other than the son of David, who would bring in the promised kingdom. So the theme in the book of Matthew is basically Jesus Christ is the king of the Jews. In this section we're looking at, we're getting towards the end of Jesus' public ministry. The nation has officially rejected him. In Matthew 13, he had stated that they had committed what's called the unpardonable sin where they had accredited to him his miraculous abilities to the powers and influence of the devil rather than of God and the spirit of God. And so they were under the sentence of judgment. And in the final months of Jesus' public ministry, instead of really proclaiming himself to the nation, he focused on teaching the disciples things that would be pertinent and important for them as to his work in the future, be it the cross and his resurrection, as well as, as he says here, I will build my church. We find that Jesus is up in the northern area of Galilee, and he has been ministering up in Galilee uh, in Caesarea Philippi, which is a community kind of at the uh, base of Mount Hermon or Hermon, and it is up there where he is ministering to them, and he asks them a question. And that question is, well, who do people say I am? You know, I've, I've had these years of ministering publicly. What's the conclusion they've come to? 
And the basic consensus was is that Jesus Christ is a prophet sent from God. Could be one of the Old Testament prophets, Jeremiah, or some even said he was John the Baptist who came back from the dead, recognizing a supernatural ability that this individual possessed. But then he turned to the 12, and he said, okay, you've told me what others are saying, now who do you say that I am? And what we have in verse 15, after asking the question, but who do you say that I am, that Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. In other words, Peter was affirming that he is the one that fulfills the Old Testament promises For example, in Psalm 2, that anointed one that is coming to rule over the nation of Israel, and even as we read in one of our scriptures, that God would give to him all the nations of the earth, and he would rule over them with a rod of iron and shatter them like earthenware. And now Christ clarifies for Peter the reality of his response He says first in verse 17, you are blessed. You have a unique privilege before God. And what is Peter's unique privilege? Well, it's the recognition that while individuals can intellectually speculate who is Jesus Christ, and they come to some conclusion, but it's not an adequate conclusion of who he really is. He says, because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. In other words, Peter, it's not because of your rational analysis that you came up with this conclusion. It's not because you listened to what all the other individuals were saying, but my Father in heaven did a special work to give you the understanding. Flesh and blood didn't reveal or disclose my true identity to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And so Christ wanted to be sure that Peter recognized, as well as the others, that the only reason they had a comprehension of his true identity is because God did a work within them. In a sense, he turned on the lights in their mind so that they saw he's not just a good man. He's not just a prophet sent from God. He's not just a great teacher. This is none other than God the Son manifested in the flesh who was born of Mary in Bethlehem. Thou art the Christ, the promised Messiah, the Son of the living God, or God the Son. And so it is affirming Peter's understanding was because of God giving comprehension. i got to pause there for a moment. It's not any different today. I can think Christ was a great person. I can think, you know, the blessings that he brought were good and beneficial works that helped others in need. But unless God opens the mind, turns on the light, gives understanding, I won't really perceive who he genuinely is. This is none other than God who was manifested in the flesh. And from that, Jesus said, And I say to you that you are Peter, and upon This rock, I will build my church. Now, what was this man's given name? Well, it was Simon. Um, He was Simon Barjona, the son of Jonah. And Christ is giving him a new name. 
and often in the scriptures, we don't see him referred to as Simon, but we see him referred to as Peter. And the Greek word translated Peter is Petros. And the idea of Petros basically means a rock or a boulder that you and I can't lift. It's a little too heavy for us. It's a big rock. You are Petros. And then he says, and upon this rock. And he doesn't use the word Petros, rock or boulder. He uses the Greek word Petra. It's a feminine word. It's related to being a boulder, but it's more the majestic mountain. It's the Matterhorn in Switzerland. It's the um, rock of Gibraltar at the entrance to the Mediterranean. It's that sheer majestic mountain that is manifested. So as Christ explains it, he makes it very clear that Peter is not the one upon whom the church is being built. Peter's just a big rock. He's not the sufficient foundation. And the recognition is Peter stated that himself in his own writings. He said, we're living stones and we come to the stone which the builders rejected, which has become the chief cornerstone. The apostle Paul said it, that Jesus Christ is the foundation upon which the church is built. Now, what's the idea being conveyed when Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church? Well, it's an Old Testament concept. You can look at the song that God gave Moses to teach the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy 32. And repeatedly, God is called the rock upon which an individual needs to build his or her life. You can look over in the Psalms, in Psalms uh, in particular. Psalm 18 refers to God as the rock of his people. The point I want you to make is in the context, in that culture, in the understanding of Peter and the other apostles. They recognize that when Jesus said, upon the rock I will build my church, he was expressing the fact that the church would be built upon God himself. And in particular, God who is manifested in the flesh, Jesus Christ. You also notice he says, I will build my church. This is something unique and different from what was true before. It is a unique possession that belongs to God the Son, to the promised Messiah. And the word that is translated church is the word which means a called out assembly. It's not a physical structure or a, a building. It is a spiritual building. It is the recognition that God has convened an assembly. He has called them out of the world to be identified with him. And what Christ said is, here's what I'm going to be doing. We know that his work was to fulfill the Father's will. He went to the cross. He drank of that cup that the Father gave him to drink. But in that reality... It was all in keeping with his intended purpose of building a group of people who would be associated with him 
as his own possession. And it is a group that would be on the offensive. And not even the gates of hell, the gates of Hades, the realm of darkness and of the devil would be able to prevail or resist this work that he's doing. The reality is that God is doing a work through Jesus Christ. And if you are one of his children and believing in him today, he is the one that called you out of that realm, that sphere of death and darkness, and brought you into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And in that relationship, you are part of what is known as his church, his called out assembly. Now, as Christ looked at building this church, you will notice he gave instruction to its um, work in what we think of as the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. In Matthew chapter 28, not only are we in the last chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, but we are looking at Jesus in his resurrected glory. And Jesus, in his resurrected glory, had called his disciples to meet with him in Galilee. So this took place sometime after the first couple weeks, right, in Jerusalem. The disciples were there. He met with them in the upper room on the day of his resurrection. The next Sunday, he appeared uh, before them again, and that's when he addressed one of the 11, his name was Thomas, and said, don't be doubting anymore. Look, here's my hands. Put your finger into the hole, <clears throat> in the hole of my hand, or put your hand into the wound of my side. And so it was his confirmation of his resurrection. If you look at the comments that he had made to the women who came to the garden and they saw the resurrected Christ, he told them to tell the disciples to go to Galilee and meet with me there. And so there was this appointed meeting that Christ had with the apostles. You'll notice verse 16. It says, the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshiped. But some were doubting. The term in the Greek doesn't really mean you don't have faith. It means they were kind of hesitant. In other words, as they saw him from afar off, they weren't really sure it was the resurrected Christ. But those doubts despair, uh, and, and questions were dispelled because it says, Jesus came up and spoke to them. So no longer from a distance, now moved into their presence. And he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I commanded you, uh, to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age." So the first thing we see is this commission was given to the apostles, to the 11. 
And we know there's a sense in which they are representative of all the church because the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself is the primary or chief cornerstone. But what I need to remember is that this commission was actually given to the eleven. And it was a commission that they were to be involved in this building program that Jesus had determined to do. I will build my church. Now we know after 40 days on the earth, he ascended into heaven. He is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And how is it that he is accomplishing this great building program? Well, it began, it was inaugurated on the day of Pentecost with a ministry of the apostles. Now, what did he tell them to do? Well, there's only one imperative in all of this section. And that imperative, that command is make disciples. So what he was commanding them to do is make followers. You know, those who were with him during his earthly life were called his disciples, his learners, his students. And they were to continue that process to make disciples, but not just of the nation of Israel, from all nations, because the reality of God building his church, of this church of Jesus Christ that he is accomplishing is that he is bringing individuals from every race and kindred and tribe and family that's upon the earth, of bringing them all together in an equality in what is known as the church, the called out assembly. And as we look at the command that he gave them to do, we notice that it encompasses two important aspects. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them. So baptizing them, teaching them. Now, who are the recipients of baptism? Well, we find that it's the ones who are responding to the proclamation or the message that was given concerning Jesus Christ. These are the ones who are putting their trust, their confidence in him. And so the outward act of baptism was a confirmation of their faith that they were trusting in the Lord Jesus for their salvation. If you and I said, well, this work of the church accomplished by the apostles as described here as baptism were put into a category, we would call it evangelism. Go into all the world making disciples, evangelizing them. And it is in the name, in the essence of the triune God. One name, not three names. In the essence of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. As a Christian, I believe there is one true God who exists in three distinct personalities, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But it's not enough just to go and proclaim the good news that those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ will have a relationship with the Father and their sins forgiven. Edification, education, teaching them to observe, all that I have commanded you. Two important functions of the church that Jesus Christ is building. Proclaiming the good news to the people in the world and growing and maturing in 
the church itself. And as we do so, notice the one that makes it work. The one that is working through his people. I am with you always. What is so wonderful about this Savior is that he said, all authority has been given to me. I have the supreme position of rule and authority. I don't have to ask permission from anyone else. No one else can assert that position from me. And I am the one that is working within my people for the glory of my name. And here's where it broadens beyond the 11. I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Looking at the completion of what God promised, and he brings in the um, kingdom that was ordained from before the foundation of the world. Now, recognizing that Jesus Christ is working within and through his people, expressing his supreme authority, we have to say tangibly, how is that realized? If you will turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. We've already seen that in the New Testament church, God's design was for his people to be a people who genuinely worshiped the Lord, giving him the glory that he deserves. And in doing so, they recognize that it begins with, Lord, here I am, use me, magnify yourself through me. And when we consider worship in our daily experience or we gather together corporately to worship, you are not the audience. I am not the audience. The audience is God himself. And in the same way, when we look at being involved in God's building program, the individual that really matters is the one that has been designated as the head of the church the one who has the supreme authority over all things in heaven and on earth, and this is the one who gives direction to his people as he builds his church and gives us the privilege of being part of it. Notice it says that when he ascended, verse 11, he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. And for what purpose did Christ, the head of the church, give these gifted individuals to perfect or to um, equip, to provide what's essential for each individual that they might be involved in the work of the ministry to do what? to build up the body of Christ. Now the theme in Ephesians is that the church, this entity of called out individuals that Christ is building is none other than his spiritual body. And what Paul makes it very clear when he describes this reality to the Corinthians, if we talk about in the body of Christ that this is a spiritual body, what I need to recognize is Everyone doesn't do the same thing. That's where we go astray. 
we start to begin to think, well, everybody ought to be doing this given task. In the body of Christ, there are gifted individuals who have positions of leadership, and what is their role or their responsibility? It's to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And equipping the saints for the work of ministry is so that the body is being built up. That the body is maturing and growing. And there's two aspects of that maturing and growing. One aspect is additional individuals are being added to this called out assembly as a response to evangelistic efforts. And the other is that those who are part of this called out assembly or body are being matured and growing in Christ into his likeness. Notice how Paul says it. He says in verse um, 13, until we all obtain to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, that we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and uh, winds of, uh, excuse me, by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by which every member or every joint supplies, how? According to the proper working of each individual part so that the body will build itself up in love. We can marvel at the great works that people do, building projects and their accomplishments. We at times can think, boy, in comparison to some of these wonders of the world and the things that have been done, my life seems almost insignificant. I haven't really made those kind of great accomplishments. What I need to remember is I'm part of a building program that has far greater importance and significance than any other activity that man can pursue. So often we get boggled down with the daily routine of the things that we have to accomplish. Be it, got to be involved in my studies in school. Got to be involved in preparing my lessons to teach. Got to be involved in researching this case that I have to present try to win for my defendant. Got to be involved in caring for the sick needs of other individuals. Got to be involved in whatever other phrase you want to put in there. And the tyranny of that urgent often causes us to neglect what is really most important. And what is really most important is to recognize I am part of something far greater, more significant than any of the temporal endeavors of men that Jesus Christ is actively involved in building his church. And he has given me the privilege of being a fellow workman with God to bring that about. And my role in the church is to recognize God's gifted me, not to be a spectator in what he is doing, but God has gifted me so that I can be of benefit 
to my brothers and sisters in Christ so I can encourage them in their maturity in Christ. So at times I might present a word that causes individuals to recognize life is more than all of the tinsel that we see in this world, that fulfillment and meaning is found in having that genuine relationship with God, that God is calling individuals out of darkness into his marvelous light. At times, I might be an individual that's planting a seed in someone's mind. They begin to contemplate it. But then God brings along someone else who waters that seed, and it begins to grow. And eventually, someone comes and says a word or two about the things of Christ, and that individual acknowledges the reality. God's turned the light on. And they put their confidence in Christ. So who's got the more important role? Well, Paul made it very clear. It's not the one who plants. And it's not the one who waters. And it's not the one who reaps. But God is the one that receives the glory. Because even for himself as an apostle, he said, but we are nothing. God is the one who's accomplishing the work. And the great sense of satisfaction is to know that God has given me the privilege of being part of something that will last forever and to have an impact in the lives of others that will bring glory to God and be a blessing to them. God's doing a great building project and its focus is upon our wonderful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ who even this day is still involved in the work of building his church. And he says to each one of us that no matter how insignificant might be the action we do or the words that we say, even a cup of cold water given in his name shall have value and that individual will will be rewarded. Have your eyes, not on the great accomplishments of men. You can appreciate what men have accomplished. You can stand at the Grand Canyon or at the Alps or the Rockies or at the seashore and look at the vastness of the world that God has made and the splendor of the stars that are beyond our ability to count and say, how great thou art, but to recognize there is something far greater in what God is presently doing. And he has given me the privilege of being an instrument in his hand. It may not be the same as what God did through Peter. It may not be the same as what God did through Paul. It may not be the same of what other Christian leaders are doing today. But what I need to recognize is, as Jesus told Peter when he said, what are you going to do with John? What is that to you? You follow me. And to know that God's given meaning and purpose to my life. He's made me part of some great work that he is doing. Of bringing unworthy individuals out of sin and darkness into a relationship with himself. And providing us with the privilege of mutually nurturing and encouraging, edifying and strengthening one another. Until what takes place? We all have become completely conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. An ongoing work where Jesus Christ said, 
I will be with you always, even to the end of the age, as he is building his church. Let's pray. I thank you so much for your word, for the encouragement it gives, for the insight we gain, and to know that you, our great God, are doing a marvelous work even in our own day, working within us to conform us to Jesus Christ and making us instruments in your hand that we might be a blessing to others for the glory of your great name. Father, stir our hearts. Stir our hearts as we begin each day to say, Lord, here am I, use me. And to have the delight and the joy of just fulfilling our daily tasks in the way that they bring honor and glory to you and to touch the lives of others for eternal good through Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray, amen.